Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. John Scholes here, your host, and always the uh, the brains behind the operation, Tamar Agopi, and courtesy Sanfiru Tamar and LLP. You want to reach out to Tamar anytime to discuss your matter because some things, you know, you're dealing with, uh, you know, personal injury or dealing with disability and an insurance company, it can be of a personal nature. So feel free to call and have a lengthier chat with Tamar or a member of her outstanding team. How is that done? It's easy, right? one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email address we're going to today for many questions. But that doesn't mean you can't call the show over the next hour. We're live here at uh, four minutes after one o'clock on a Saturday. How do you do it? 416-872-1010. 416-872-1010 to call in and ask your questions. We'll get to our emails shortly here in uh, about a moment tomorrow. But we always start off with the case of the day or week that was. What's been going on with you this week? Well, this week I wanted to highlight a conversation I've been, I had with uh, someone who had contacted our firm a few weeks ago and then some follow-up work we've been doing with her the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going to end it, uh, you know, on the note of, I think we're going to move forward and challenge uh, the disability insurer. No shocker there. But I think the facts of her situation are so compelling and you know, the underpinnings of it are things related to COVID that we are still talking about and we are still seeing resistance from the disability insurers in approving these types of claims. So let me backtrack a little bit. This woman actually was doing two jobs. She had her own business and she was working for a large municipality in an activities related type role. So clearly that was, you know, physical and cognitive and emotional mm-hmm. it, it, it requires a number of different essential tasks and for those who listen to the show you know that when you make your ltd application out of the gates what the disability insurer is looking for is medical support for total disability from your own occupation right now she submitted information that suggested there was ha- that she was having physical reactions to things john seizure-like conditions, uh, brain fog, fatigue, nausea, uh, to the point where she kept coming sort of in and out of the ER for a period of time. After the second ER attendance and the seizure-like symptoms, her family doctor put her off work and referred her to a neurologist. And eventually, actually, they even took her driver's license away. Okay, that was the starting point. And they weren't really sure what was going on. And then things sort of progressed from there. She both had further reactions as a result of COVID, actually contracting COVID, and reactions following uh, the vaccine, getting vaccinated. But the doctors weren't really connecting the health issues to either of those instances. And in fact, when I spoke with her, she's like, I'm not really even sure if it's related tomorrow, but the time frames were the same. And all I know is that I was having lingering symptoms that would kind of come and go, but so much so that it was preventing me from focusing on tasks. Even she describes to me, John, that even going to the grocery store, she, it would take her an hour to go and get like two items wow. because she would forget when she got there what she needed. And then she, she would get overwhelmed with people. So sometimes she would sit in the car for a little while um, and of course not driving. So someone would have to be with her. So these are all witnessed, documented you know, evidence and information. Fast forward through an entire year, okay, one year of further medical attendances. She's now seen two neurologists. She was referred to a psychiatrist as well. Um, Clearly, they diagnosed, uh, you know, mental health conditions, but, you know, not a surprise because she'd been off work for a year. 
and the disability insurer was resisting her claim. So she's challenging the disability insurer. Her business is going down the tubes. She can't go back to her regular job. She doesn't understand what's going on. And of course, has to battle the disability insurer to try and demonstrate, hey, these are real symptoms. Yes, there's no label or definition or diagnosis, but clearly I've got all of these symptoms that are preventing me from working. She eventually does get the diagnosis on the mental health condition, but that doesn't necessarily explain everything. And so she went through two appeals already, John, before she contacted us for further advice. And, you know, I think that what was most disappointing was that the insurer had all of this information, had been going through this with her, in essence, because she kept going back to the doctors and concluded that, well, we just don't think you were disabled enough. And you weren't disabled enough through this whole period of time and specifically what they call the qualifying period or the elimination period for disability. Mm -hmm. And that period of time really is the initial three, four, five months of disability before LTD benefits kick in. Usually that's tied up against the short-term disability period. But either way, it's the same test, same time frame, right, John? And the what's staggering to me is that they had all of this medical information And for disability benefits to be entitled to it, you don't actually need a diagnosis. In fact, you don't even need to find the cause. It doesn't even need to be related to COVID or not COVID. And this is exactly what I said to her. I said, well, if the the insurance company is holding out to finger point on this is what it is, they may never get there because some of these COVID-related issues that we're seeing are very unknown. They're new even to the medical profession. So whether or not it's being diagnosed or treated or, you know, you know, defined as long COVID, for example, which is something that we are seeing quite a bit, is actually irrelevant to the analysis. The core of the issue is that she's got a series of symptoms. Those symptoms have kept her off work. Those symptoms have been validated by multiple doctors and specialists. And everyone is saying that she is not capable of functioning right now in a work setting. But the insurance company was not going to be deterred from resisting approving her claim. They even suggested that the trip that she took with her family to go visit her dad overseas must mean that that two-week window must mean that she can then function and do her job and get back to things, which again, nothing could be further from the truth. And the reason why I wanted to highlight this to our listeners is because this is still happening. We talk about this day in and day out. We also want to emphasize that this is why starting a legal claim as opposed to going through the appeal process can be a much more efficient and effective way to press the disability insurer to pay your benefits. And one of the main takeaways is because adjusters are looking for that diagnosis, John. They're they're looking to fit this within a certain box so that they can create a timeline as to when you should be better and back at work. And when they have an absence of that, it then puts them in a situation where they're like, well, it doesn't check off this box. So if we approve, when can we actually close this claim out? And they don't want to do that, right? Plus there's floodgate issues we've talked about as well when there's a COVID component. But I can assure you that no disability insurer wants to be the first one in front of a judge where a judge makes a ruling that long COVID or anything related to that is in fact a disability and warrants disability benefits. I can assure you, which is what I've said to this individual who's contacted us, that this is going to resolve before we see the inside of a courtroom and it's going to be in the hands of someone other than the adjuster who keeps saying no. 
appeal after appeal. She's more frustrated. Health is not going in the right direction. Now we've got the mental health components. These are all veritable and certifiable and appropriate bases in order to qualify for disability benefits. So look, our next step in this situation is going to be getting retained and starting that legal claim. But I, I guess what I'm concerned about is if there are others out there who are getting this resistance from disability insurers, you know, it, it, the approach is to wear people down to the point where they just walk away or contemplate returning back to work in some sort of setting, even with compromised health, because either they're financially in need of doing so, or they're just simply frustrated and want to give up. And I really, really would encourage any of those individuals not to hesitate to contact me, contact anyone at the firm. Our team can absolutely help and at the very least have a conversation with us. It's absolutely free and we can talk you through some options and then make some choices. And the choice was ultimately up to the claimant to decide whether or not she wanted to move forward with a legal claim. The interesting thing about that, and you you, you did mention it, but I, I find this whole thing where the diagnosis first, not, you know, symptoms are actually what, what will qualify you for the LTD. Talk a little more about that because, you know, I'm sure people have run up to this saying, oh, sorry, we don't, we don't know what it is. You're not diagnosing anything, therefore you don't qualify for your benefits, right? And they'll think that's the end of the story. Absolutely. And the definition of total disability is really what matters here. And frankly, how the courts have interpreted that, John. And so it is typically a test that simply says, if you've got health issues that prevent you from working, and doing the essential duties of your occupation, at least in this initial phase, then you are qualified for LTD benefits. It doesn't say you need a diagnosis. doesn't even say that you need a doctor to actually confirm these symptoms or conditions. I mean, of course it helps, but at the end of the day, if you're getting the medical advice that you're not capable of working, then in my mind, that is what really needs to be acknowledged and accepted by the disability insurers. And they do this somewhat intentionally, right? Their idea, the whole model only works is if they take the premium and not pay out claims, right? And so I find with subjectively reported symptoms and conditions, you get that much more resistance from the disability insurer because it isn't so easy to see on an x-ray or a scan. Uh, and you there is a lot of reliance on what the claimant is reporting and then what their doctors are doing about the symptoms that are being reported. And the courts have said that's absolutely valid. Fatigue, depression, anxiety, brain fog, cognitive issues. Yeah. I, I can go on. The list goes on and on, John. All absolutely valid disability claims. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is that if that's what someone is facing, that's the barrier. Not the barrier from the doctor or even the treatment, but the barrier from the disability insurer, then there are options there and there are ways to force their hand to actually pay these types of claims. More often than not, though, you are going to need some help in terms of a legal claim and going down that path to do so. Again, phone calls, lines are open. We are set to go. Bring it on, 416-872-1010. You'll want to call into the show. Now you got lots of time. It's only quarter after one. So we'll continue with that and get into our emails after the break as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Stand by. And welcome back to it. It is 1.20 on your Saturday afternoon. Tamara Gopian is here. She is handling all of your questions via email or phone line. You want to call in, you still have lots of time to reach us here on the show and be part of the conversation. 416-872-1010. You want to send a text along, that would be 71010 as well. 
And beyond that, reaching out to Tamara's Simple Comfort different ways. Uh, first of all, the emails were going through. They arrived through help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number as well, 1-855-821-5900. That you can use if you want more of a lengthy conversation with Tamara or a member of her team. She will help you out in that regard. Again, one 855 Let's move down to Sheila. Sheila must have been listening in the first section, so this sounds eerily familiar. So we'll get into our first email. Tamara says, hey, guys, I work in the medical industry and have been off work for a year because of an injury to my back. I applied for LTD shortly after going on leave but was denied by the insurance company. I just sent in my second appeal, but I'm worried I will be denied again. I've already been off work with no income for a year. My doctor has told me that my injury is too severe to return to work yet. How can I get the insurance company to approve me? Yes, Sheila. <laughs> yes, I understand this situation wholeheartedly, and it can be incredibly frustrating, especially when you've already been approved for short term and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to just transition to long term. I've got the medical support. So, what's the problem here? And, you know, I think that to some extent, I wonder what kind of information her doctor has actually provided to the insurance company. That's really where I would start with my analysis with Sheila is, you know, is it detailed enough? How strong is the information? Does it clearly correlate to the essential duties of her occupation? And, you know, underlining the fact that she cannot do her job in the medical industry. I mean, look, the fact that she's been off for a year, though, and going through what it sounds like is a number of appeals is really what the core of the problem here is for Sheila. Other than the medical support, I mean, I'm sure it's there. She says her doctor says stay off work. So what's happening here? Let's unpack this a bit. We haven't talked about the appeal process directly uh, in a little while, John, or maybe we have, but either way, I think it's a good reminder for our listeners that- you know, this is not something that is written down in the disability policy. This is not something that's written down really for the adjusters. There's not really a guideline or a policy around this. I think it's a regulator's issue for these insurance companies to have some form of checks or balances with the decisions that they make, but it's all internal. So what they have usually is three levels of appeal. They will deny you the first time around, the first level or two Usually it's the same adjuster who said no to you already, looking at all the same information Mm -hmm. and issuing another decision, which typically is also no. It's human nature. Unless there's something vastly different than the profile that you already applied upon, very rare that that's going to change their mind. And then some insurers have like a final level or a third level of appeal. Uh, Some will have like a committee, but you never know who's in the committee Inevitably, it will include the adjuster who's already said no to you a couple of times because they're familiar with your claim. Um, It may or may not include a a medical review. And I think that's the one that really people don't understand is that they may not even consult a doctor to weigh in on the decision to decline your claim. So not only are they not deferring to your own doctor, they're also not getting an opinion from one of their doctors, which I mean, really, John, it's not really worth the paper it's written on typically anyway, but it just adds insult to injury that if they're going to not defer to your own doctors, you'd think that they would at least have one of their doctors look at it. But I've also seen in the appeal process that that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Certainly, they're not getting their doctor to talk to you or talk to your own doctors about what's happening with your health, and they're just simply rendering that decision. And really, I think the goal is just to wear you down. I mean, what else is it other than that process? And frankly, not having even 
time frames involved. People always say to me, well, tomorrow, okay, so I can appeal. They've said I've got like 30 days to do it. So I'll, I'll just do it. I'll tell them I'm appealing. And then they'll look at this again. And then they'll tell me right in like day 31 that they've approved me or denied me. I'm like, well, no, it doesn't work that way. There's nothing written that says they have to actually respond to you on day 31 or day 61 or day 91. Huh. This is why some people appeal for so long, because there is no requirement for the adjuster to respond to you in any given period of time. They put that onus on you. They tell you you've got a deadline because they just want to close out their claim. They want to close the file out on their end so the adjuster can check off the box to say, I've denied, they have not appealed, and I'm closing this out. I'm not going to look at this anymore. And people don't know that that deadline is arbitrary. The process is arbitrary. It has no you know, oversight beyond just internally at the insurance company. And the, stack, the, the cards are stacked against people. Whereas when you start a legal claim, it's like great leveling of, of all things. In fact, I would say most claimants have a huge advantage in that process because it's a it's a legal claim. You're asserting it. You've hopefully got a good disability lawyer who's helping you do it. And there are very strict timeframes around when they have to respond. And in some jurisdictions, when they actually have to have a sit down with you to talk to you about resolving claims. Like in Toronto, it's got to be within six months of them initially defending the claim, John. So right. that, you know, it can't be a year of going back and forth because the rules there specifically say you must, insurance company, have a conversation with plaintiff and their counsel about settling the claim. And so, this is why I get frustrated with the appeal process, the lack of transparency to people around what this actually means. And people don't know what to do after it's been months of this, no income, still not better with their health, and not getting that support from the disability insurer. Think of a situation with Sheila, if she had come to us after the first denial, we probably would have had significant inroads in that one-year process. Sometimes we can resolve it within a year, John. Sometimes it's a few phone calls. We start the legal claim. We know the insurance company. The medical is very strong. And we have a conversation about resolving it, in fact, directly with the disability insurer. But the key thing is, is that it's not the adjuster who said no to you a couple of times. It's, it's not even the same individual at the insurance company who's making the decisions. It's usually an in-house lawyer and a specific individual at the insurance company who has money available, compensation, to actually pay off these claims and close them out. Because we leverage the risks. And this is the thing that you're not doing in the appeal process is that you're not allowing uh, someone to help you leverage the reputational risks, the damages risks, the financial risks against the insurance company to force their hand to get real with your disability claim and actually look at it critically. Because if the medical support is there, and I suspect it is for Sheila's situation, then she will get support if a judge were to weigh in on this. Judge is going to look at this and say, hang on, insurance company, why is it that you're denying? So I think that it is important for, for people to hear from us about what that process looks like, the appeal process, and how much more efficient the legal claim process can be. And frankly, it allows people to just focus on their health. That's the main thing I always talk, talk to uh, initial clients about is, hey, I'm going to let you focus on you. This becomes my problem, and I'm happy for it to become my problem so that you can make the progress that you probably should have made six months ago with your health and dealing with your doctors and not having to deal with a disability insurer. 
how often in, in your opinion i would imagine the number is quite high tomorrow that you know once the insurance company is is you know stalemate with the uh, with the insured and this person trying to get on claim been or maybe in sheila's case been you know appealed twice with no results once they see the letterhead come from you across their desk not that you're calling their bluff they're not bluffing but how often do they say you know you know what or get off the pot because we're going to there's going to be a legal claim here. How often does that resolve with a letter or at least a little bit of a nudging from you guys? I mean, it, it can, right, John? It, yeah. it has happened where I will send my... So I get... Re- the process is we get retained. Mm-hmm. Uh, documentation is ready to go. My very first next step is I will send that notice letter to the disability insurer saying, hey, I'm I'm retained. I'm dealing with Sheila's claim. Do not contact Sheila. Contact me if you've got any other questions about her claim. I want your full file and then I'm going to sue you. Okay. So that's usually in essence, the letter that I send over and it has happened where they get my letter and they say, "Uh, no, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. We were wrong. We're going to put your person on claim or reinstate their benefits. Uh, We want to resolve this fairly quickly. Um, But I never want to give people the impression that that's all it takes. Sometimes it takes a lot more work to get them to that point, but it can happen that when they know who we are, because our reputation precedes us, that they know what battle they're going to face if they don't get real with a disability claim that should have always been approved from the start. And with that, we'll slide into a quick break. Your uh, phone calls, bring them on. 416-872-1010 is how you do that. Back to the email as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We continue with the Disability Law Show, the Bell Talk Radio Network. And we're back at it. You betcha. 135 on your Saturday. Hope you're having a a great, fantastic, wonderful day. Here's how you reach out uh, for the remainder of the show. Quite simple, actually. 416-872-1010 to call in. You want to drop an email by. We're trying to get through some of the emails on the show today as well. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. And beyond the hour today, you can always reach out to Tamar and her team at the firm. Always ready to take your calls and have a, uh, a private chat to one 821 5900 And you can also ask questions online via mydisabilityquestions.com. That, uh, that was built around usefulness for you, right? You just throw your questions in there. It's also got a searchable database. That's the way the algorithm works. So you can see if a question like yours has been asked and answered in the past, and then it'll save you some time. If not, just type it in. It'll get answered. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. But we always go to our phone calls first, always the priority, and uh, we'll do so. Get to uh, to Robert. Rob, thanks for so much for standing by for a moment. How are you today? Not too bad. Uh, Good. So I'm calling on behalf of a member of our, of our, of our plant, Okay, and this guy's been off work for like almost two years. Okay, and they're keeping him. He's in, a, he's in the maintenance department, by the way. So uh, he got hurt one time, and then, anyways, to make a long story short, the uh, company he's gotten a number of letters from his doctor saying he's fit to go back to work on light duty. Okay, with with some restrictions because he had fractured his hand quite badly. Okay, so and he had been back to work on light duty for a brief period of time, and then the company stopped it, okay? So what the company gave him to do, they sent another consulting company to him, uh, and this is a group of psychologists to talk to him about whatever, his anger issues. And and the reason why I don't blame it to anger issues, um, him he, him and uh, myself and, and uh, the, the person did a big PSR against the company and cost the company about a million and a half dollars. And now they're doing this to this, this person. They won't let him come back to work. And I've asked it, and I've been in meetings, and I've asked, look, 
can he come back to work? And they said no. And then I asked them that we put a proper form in and, and asking them why. They would never give me a reason why. Interesting. So now, I know we're a unionized company, okay? Mm, but yes. this is a WSIB thing, or right. it's some medical thing, and he has to have rights. And our and the union will never get a hold of this in time. This guy's going bankrupt and everything else. It sounds like a really difficult situation, Robert, but you're right. When you're unionized, unfortunately, you're sort of stuck with the good and the bad with the union. And the downside is is that, uh, and it sounds like an employment issue more than a disability one, and the real big downside is is that you cannot hire an external lawyer to help uh, this even, individual get them back at work. So even, generally speaking... Even if the case, ahead. and I'm just saying this, even if the case, we did a, a, a PSR, and we, the company didn't do a PSR in their major component plan. And it drove the, and we took us three years to get this PSR started. And long story short, it cost the company about a million, million nine to right, do all the that. upgrades that and they so, had to do. And, and there could been, be, uh, there could be a retaliation feature. Yeah, there could be a retaliation feature, absolutely. Hard to prove that could be an element. But I think that's why you need to sort of mobilize the union to try and champion these rights. But, but let me use what you've given as an example, Robert, to talk to our listeners more generally about what happens if you're on a disability leave and you're trying to get back to work. The employer does have a duty to accommodate that return. And you want to be able to submit some medical information to support, look, these are the ongoing restrictions and limitations that I have. And on this basis, my doctor is giving me the green light to return. And then you've got to engage in that process with your employer to try and put things in place with you to get you to return back and have that return be successful. But I think in settings like this, the medical support that you supply from your own doctor becomes very, very important in having those conversations with your employer. And the employer's duty is to work with you to try and get some accommodation put in place. And the law says it's to the point of undue hardship. Now, very technical stuff, and it's hard to pin down from a case-by-case basis what those limits of that undue hardship are. But certainly it can't be, look, you've been on a leave and we simply don't want you to come back because we don't like you uh, or, you know, there's some other reason, external reason. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate the call, Robert. But unfortunately for yourself and your colleague, I think this is something you'll have to take up with the union. It's very, very, and the thing is, these. This is uh, to the point that uh, there's a human rights case in here, and that uh, uh, they actually took his from the maintenance department. They have a list of the maintenance staff there that are that are that work there, and they they took him off the list of being employed. So again, I, I, there's not a lot you can do for, with an external lawyer's help. So I think that this is definitely something you'll want to pursue with the union. And of course, if there is a WSIB component, again, we also don't work in that realm. And he want to make sure that this individual is accessing the benefits that he's supposed to get from workers' compensation and trying to advocate through the union's help to get himself back to work. Thanks very much, though. I appreciate the call. Thanks, pal. Appreciate it. Can we go back to our, uh, our emails tomorrow? Again, help at disabilityrights.ca. Bryce is up next, says, uh, I've been a long-term disability for just over a year now. The other day, I noticed that someone is following me with a camera. I've been going to the gym twice a week per doctor's advice to help me ease my stress and anxiety. I'm worried that the insurance company is going to use this against me. Should I stop going if the insurance company is recording me? What can I do if they stop paying me because of this? 
Really good question, Bryce. And so it can happen that disability insurers and adjusters use a variety of tools in their toolkit to adjudicate claims. And one of those tools at their disposal is potentially hiring an investigator or a third-party surveillance individual to follow a claimant around and see what they're observing in terms of their level of activity. I want people to understand, though, that this is not very common. I know people think that this is happening all the time. It actually doesn't happen as often as you think, because it actually costs the insurance companies quite a lot of money to do this. And they're cheap. They don't want to spend money on these things. And they will only do so if they really do think that it could bring the claim to a close. But what Bryce is saying is, well, how do I know? And if are they going to use this against me? You know, could my claim close? And it's not even really certain, actually, that it's the adjuster or the insurance company that's actually been following him. So I'm not 100% certain that's the case. But if it is the case, first of all, you may never know if the insurance company is not relying on it. But if they are relying on it, they have to actually disclose it to you and put that to you in a denial letter and say, look, you told us you couldn't do ABC, but our investigator went out on these two or three days and they saw you doing this, these things. We think they're inconsistent from what your medical information is saying or what you've reported. Mm-hmm. And on that basis, we're going to decline your claim. However, John, I have represented many individuals where insurance companies have had this kind of surveillance and have even gone so far as to decline claims on the basis of these surveillance observations. There's two main takeaways, which is number one, it is not necessarily as fatal to a disability claim as people think. Adjusters get very emboldened when they think that they've caught you. Oh, you know, here's the smoking gun. But it's not so linear if they're only observing you one out of many days. If they're surveilling you for several weeks and you're out a couple of times in those weeks, nothing untoward. In fact, if you're doing activities you've already disclosed to your doctors or the insurance company, again, nothing untoward. And so sometimes when adjusters get really keen on surveillance that they think is quite damning and deny on that basis, we can actually turn that on its head as disability lawyers to use that to our advantage to actually suggest to the insurer that they've actually you know, breached their duty of good faith, right? And they're just coming at this from a very cynical perspective and really just trying to ad- attack the credibility of a disability claimant. So just because you've been denied on the basis of surveillance, folks, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to hold water. And here's my second point to this. The courts agree. Okay. The courts have agreed, um, not even just in the disability context, even in the personal injury, motor vehicle claims, the trend right now in the provinces that we operate in is that judges don't think that this is actually all that persuasive. A lot of the time, insurers want to make a lot of mileage out of the surveillance observations. And in fact, it just makes them look worse in front of the eyes of a judge who's saying, hang on, so you've relied on all this surveillance evidence to deny an otherwise valid disability claim? Shame on you. And they've actually awarded damages against insurers who have taken this kind of approach. And with that, we'll take one more final break till we uh, get to the rest of the show. That'll give you some time, just like uh, Robert was, to give us a call here in the remaining minutes. That's 416-872-1010 or email help at disabilityrights.ca. You can always reach out to Tamar and her team for a lengthier conversation. We keep saying that, but use it. And that would be 1-855-821-5900. We'll continue Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 
Alrighty, we are back. It is 150. You still got some time to grab a phone, give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. A failing night. We'll get into back or at least get into more of our email here, which we've been uh, churning our way through over the last hour. Any other time you want to send an email, you can to Tamar and their team. They're always answering them. That's help at disabilityrights.ca. And to reach out after the show going forward, 1 855 821 5900. But here and now, 416 872 1010. I was just thinking about uh, Bryce's email. You know, he's been going to the gym a couple times, and Neil, he's, he's someone following him with a camera. To your point, um, not always. In fact, I would say it's probably rare, the fact that it could be the insurance company. So, I mean, the advice you usually give to Mars, if you don't know, call the insurance company. If they say it's not us, call the police. How about that? Yes. And so I was thinking about that too, about whether or not you're better off actually facing this head on and actually asking your adjuster, hey, are you having me followed? Yeah. Now, look, if you're actually being followed and it's not the adjuster, I totally agree with you, John, that obviously there's something more going on here and you want to protect yourself and so that you're not being harassed or some other something more sorted. By the same token, uh, there's always a little bit of a risk putting the surveillance on your adjuster's radar, because inevitably they're going to look at this as potentially a red flag. And they're going to say, wait a minute, why are you asking us about surveillance? What are you concerned about that you're doing that you either haven't told us or that maybe we should actually, you know, watch you and have you watched? And so it's a bit of a situation, a catch-22 to some extent, because I would like to know if it was me, if the adjuster is actually having someone follow me around by the same token. If I put this on the adjuster's radar, am I just inviting that surveillance may eventually happen? So I think with Bryce, you know, really the best approach is just to be sure that you're being open and honest with your adjusters about the type of activity that you are engaging in and making sure that that activity level is endorsed by your own medical team, the practitioners, be it physiotherapist, family doctor, if it's a physical disability, and then of course, if it's a mental health disability by your psychologist or psychiatrist. I, you know, One of the things on the mental health side, John, is exposure therapy. This is one component that I know some of my clients have had to uh, go through. Okay. And that's specifically advice from a psychologist saying, we want you to put yourself in settings that would expose you to things that may be otherwise triggering so that you can train yourself to get past those emotions and feelings and sentiments and really have that be part of your therapy. So I have actually had disability insurers be critical of that type of therapy and then fact, the activities that a claimant will engage in on the advice of their own medical team. So, you know, same with Bryce. I mean, if it's a physical disability and they've said to you, look, you got to start going back to the gym, that's really, really going to help your recovery. Then it's all absolutely fair. You're not doing anything offside. And if it is an insurance company observing you doing these things and you've already gotten the green light from your doctors to do it, then they really can't use it against you, at least not properly, to deny your disability claim. But in terms of actually asking your adjuster, that's a tough one. I, I sort of hedge on that advice because on the one hand, I don't want people to put themselves in harm's way or be exposed to someone following them improperly. By the same token, I also don't want people compromising the entitlement of disability benefits by putting the, the question in the mind of the adjuster that perhaps you're not being completely truthful about your daily activities. Can an employer, let's flip it over to the employer thing because I was right. thinking this, can an employer have any influence at all or role with a disability claim for one of their employees if they want to help out? Interesting. Well, I mean, we talked about this a little bit when Robert called us um, at our prior segment about what the employer's role might be when you're returning back from a disability leave. But I'm, I want to talk a little bit more about what the role of your employer is while you're on a disability leave. 
And if your disability claim is actually in pay mode, so you're being approved and paid by the disability insurer, then the disability insurer will most likely update your employer periodically about what's happening with your disability claim. For example, if you receive an approval letter or an update letter or a check-in letter from your adjuster, typically at the bottom of that letter, you'll see a, a copy, carbon copy to your employer. Not all insurers do it though. So for any who are thinking, well, I don't have to contact my employer at all while I'm on leave, that's only partially true. Your employer is not entitled to know all of your medical information. Uh, they're not even really entitled to know why you're off on a disability leave. While you're on leave, what they are entitled to know is, is there a reasonable prospect of you returning to work? And if so, when that's going to be. So some employers will just take the update from the insurer if updates are being provided. Other employers actually want to be updated more directly. So they may contact a claimant and say, look, what are you doing with your disability claim? What's happening? Where's the status of your health? You know, are you going to be back in three months? Uh, and they may even ask for a brief medical note to support the disability leave. Now, John, I see that more often when the disability claim has been denied, right? So the claim is denied for LTD or STD. Someone is trying to figure out, look, what do I do? Do I hire tomorrow? <laughs> do I go down the path yeah. of a legal claim? hopefully. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, my clients will ask me, well, tomorrow, what do I do with my employer? They actually reach out to me saying, am I coming back to work? Because the adjuster, my insurance company is saying I can. And I always say, look, don't stress. They just, they don't know the full picture. They don't know that your doctors are still recommending that you stay off work. So you just need to respond to that, update them. And yes, they may require a brief medical note just saying, you know, you're still unwell, your health prevents you, you'll be reassessed in a few months time. Because otherwise, the employer will just simply assume, if you ignore them, that you've either abandoned your job, or they will assume that you're not coming back, and there are ramifications with your employment as a result of that. And the last thing I want to see is people compromising their employment as a result of having to challenge the disability insurer for benefits. Yeah. The one good thing about still being employed while you're pursuing disability benefits, John, is typically you still have access to extended health care. And that is an employment piece that's usually tied to being employed. You know, it may or may not include premiums being paid, but you can see people who have disability claims, they do need to access treatments. Sometimes it's therapy, sometimes it's medication. Either way, the last thing you want to do is inadvertently give up your job and therefore inadvertently give up coverages that may you may need to derive benefit from. Does it matter if the short-term disability and long-term disability providers are different or the same? That's another good question. So yeah. I typically will see the short-term disability provider either being a third-party administrator or uh. some kind of company that looks at the short-term claim on behalf of the employer. But what ends up happening is if that third-party company agrees that you have a disability claim, then your employer actually pays your short-term claim, okay? So for short-term, it actually, the employer is probably more closely involved and it's a lot more relevant to keep your employer updated than perhaps it would be for long-term because the majority of group long-term disability plans are payable by the disability insurer. I mean, 
most certainly every private disability insurance plan is right. paid by the insurer, right? But when we talk about most of the plans on this show, we're talking about group plans related to employment. So I think that with the employer on a short-term disability claim, that is a, a, a little bit more delicate to try and manage. You can't always rely on what the third-party administrator is advising your employer, and the employer may more closely monitor your disability claim because short-term claims at, by their very nature typically end within four to six months of you being off and the expectation of course after that that you will be returning back to work and there's return to work planning that'll be engaged directly with your employer always good stuff as we wrap it for another weekend reaching out to tomorrow always advised to do so to have a similar conversation like we do every week you want to do so it is 1-855-821-5900 reach out by phone help at disabilityrights.ca through email and that uh, other website available for you to ask your questions with your smartphone your tablet whatever mydisabilityquestions.com we'll catch you next time for the disability law show 